We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Welcome to 10 Questions. Thanks for the feedback on the Steve Weisart interview. I, I really enjoyed putting that one together. And of course, you can contact me on Twitter at The10Questions. Today, I'm interviewing one of Australia's greatest journalists, the host of PM, Mark Colvin. Mark's a graduate of Oxford, a pioneering staff member of 2JJ, which became Triple J. He was one of the first reporters on Nationwide then became a foreign correspondent in London, was the founding presenter on The World Today, then worked on Four Corners, Foreign Correspondent, Late Line, and The 7.30 Report. And it was when he was in Rwanda for The 7.30 Report that he became ill with a condition that nearly took his life. He talks about that in this interview, as well as the subsequent life-saving treatments he's had over the years including a kidney transplant. Today, Mark is generous in revealing many dramatic moments in his life, both journalistically and personally, but it really only touches the surface. The rest will be in his memoir that he's taking leave from PM to write. I started by asking Mark when he was most happy. I think there's, there's a sort of innocent happiness and then there's a kind of grown-up happiness. I think I was, I was very happy when I was a small child, I, I remember, you know, most of my childhood memories are very happy, even though I was moving around the world and, uh, you know, because my, my dad was a spook under the cover of, of being a diplomat. And, you know, in some ways you'd think that would be very confusing and not a very happy experience for a child. But it, I was happy, uh, for instance, we lived in Kuala Lumpur in a, in a house with a, a nice big garden that had had banana trees down the back and a mango steam tr- tree in the middle. And I always think of it, and it was by, beside the Kuala Lumpur race course, and I had learned to ride a pony there, and there was a big swimming pool nearby. And in, in, you lived in Kuala Lumpur. You went, when you went to school in Kuala Lumpur, you got up early in the morning, you were home at lunchtime, and the rest of the day was your own. So I used to spend most afternoons, in my memory anyway, I used to spend most afternoons at the pool and, uh, or, or, you know, riding a pony or whatever. And, and, uh, that, that garden with a mangosteen tree always seems a bit like the Garden of Eden to me. Yeah. In, in, in and especially as, as I was then, you know, sent back, back at the age of seven, sent, sent back to England where it was very cold to go to a really nasty boarding school. That's a bit like being thrown out the garden of Eden in some ways. But uh, in adulthood, I don't know. I think the, the the three years I spent at what was then called Double J, which is now Triple J, uh, from the founding of, you know, it was a brand new radio station and it was uh, it was just huge fun. You, you just had incredible freedom. And it was what it was what made me into a journalist. I'd been a, a, I was a cadet for a year in 1974, and then I went over to Double J in 1975. And and the freedom to cover the stuff that you wanted, the freedom to cover stuff that you that your own generation wanted to cover, uh, all all of that. Uh, I worked incredibly hard, but made some fantastic friends and mm. had an enormous amount of fun and saw some great music. 
that was a very happy time. I mean, you know, I haven't had a lot of terribly unhappy times in my life, except, you know, largely, well, apart from being sent off to boarding school, but, uh, but you know, most of my unhappy times have been caused by ill health and being in hospital and things like that. Yeah. So, but, you know, th- th- those are probably two good, very good examples of happiness in my life. I- I'm a boarding school uh, veteran too, uh, but I didn't go to boarding school at seven. That, so you went from seven to, what, 18 or? Yeah, the first, the first five years were the worst because I was at a really nasty uh, Dickensian place. And then I, then I went to a much nicer place in London where half the kids were, were day boys and uh, m- the rest of us were mostly weekly boarders. And my mother was living in London. And so I was 10 minutes away on bus ride if I... I needed to nip home and get something, you know. Yeah. So that was that was good. But the five years of complete isolation, especially the first few years when my parents were on the other side of the world, and so there was oh. ne- never even any thought that you could run away and, <laughs> That's and just, you know, be done with the whole thing. That was that was tough. Yeah, that is extraordinary. At the age of seven, being sent to the other side of the world to to some horrible English boarding school. It was lonely, and I think I was quite angry about it. I got into a lot of fights. I was beaten. I was beaten pretty constantly for the first couple of terms. And, uh, and you know, to, to some of that was my fault, if you like, because I think I was reacting very badly. I used to flail around and thrash around and get into fights with other boys, but, but that was because I was just, you know, incredibly lonely and confused mainly. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and you know, you, you, you watch, uh, you watch, uh, Harry, you read Harry Potter or watch the Harry Potter films and, and, um, they all, they all piling onto the, the school train. Mm. <laughs> That's the bit that always annoys me. You know, the school train was just associated with the feeling of that utter dread for me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for me it was the, uh, the the plane from Cairns to Brisbane. We'd all get on that, oh, yeah. in our different uniforms and um, all looking quite miserable. Yeah, I remember flying flying back a few times on, on your own. They used to put this label around your neck, a bit like Paddington Bear, that said VYP, very young passenger, and they looked after you very well. Uh, but I, I, um, it was it was quite a strange experience, you know, going first. To, the plane and then a relative would meet you at the other end and then it'd be the school train and yeah that was that was no fun and also being being dropped off uh, on on a sunday evening after one of the rare weekends out that was a uh, that can still bring a, a sense of dread to the bottom of my stomach you know question two who would you like to apologize to and why um i think i'd like to apologize to the people that I have sort of left in my trail. I mean, we all do this, I think. You know, you you, you move on. In my case, I've, I've moved so much from country to country, and sometimes I haven't been as good as I should have been about keeping up connections with people. I'm, I'm a bad letter writer, and, you know, I, an awful lot of my travel comes from the pre-Skype era, the pre-Cheekbone Gaul era, Mm. All of that, and it was harder to keep in touch. I'm not making excuses, really, but um, you know, cut connections with people that I'm very fond of. On the other hand, you know, I'm, I the great friendships are the ones that, you, that just take up and take up where they left off. I, I had 
I had spent a day the other day with an old friend I hadn't seen for a very long time, and and uh, it was just like taking it up where we left off. You know, it was it was there was it was as if we had seen each other yesterday. You know, so it's really easy to just get to get onto the hamster wheel, especially now in the in the Twitter era. You know, I'm I am almost I'm off writing a book now, and I'm I'm really trying to break the habit but you know i spend an enormous amount of time when i'm not working just trawling the net looking for stories basically my job is to be across everything mm. anything that happens shouldn't surprise me too much and they should be able to throw a live interview at me at any time i think that's basically my job really so i do an enormous amount of broad reading right across the board and i i have twitter kind of in the corner of my eye almost all the time just look waiting for anything big to break and so forth so it's actually yeah you can just get completely caught up in in the moment really twitter really does play into the journalist's instincts oh absolutely and it's and it is and it is uh it's an incredible tool for journalism too you know there's so many times when when i have either got contacts or ideas or got in contact with people or helped other other colleagues get in, in contact with people. If, you, if you've got a lot of followers, you can use it as a crowdsourcing system. You know, you can check facts. Mm. You can get people. People will just happily send you quite abstruse documents or whatever if, you look, if you're researching a story. It's quite an incredible thing like that. Also, it has this amazing effect. I think it it measurably boosts the profile of, of the program that I do PM and, and it also gives people the sense that you are not, maybe you're not just, you know, a newsreader, just a newsreader. You know mm. what I mean? That you are actually a proper journalist uh, and the, the program has something to do with you. Question three, what is your, question three, what is your greatest regret? Look, I, I keep thinking about this and, and honestly, my feeling about this is, is that, you can't have regrets. No. Um, I I think because I've had so many weird things happen in my life that I would, if I if I was the regretting type, I would think, oh God, I wish I could go back and change that. Mm. You know, a lot of things that have happened to me, and obviously, you know, the last twenty years of my life have been dominated by chronic disease, one way or another, you know, I went to, so I could say to you, oh, God, I wish I hadn't gone to Rwanda mm. and got the the illness that triggered the immune system disease that, you know, or, or I could say, but it's it's like that game about, you know, if you could go back and kill Hitler, would you would you do that? Or if you could go back mm. and stop Hitler being, being uh, you know, stop Hitler's parents meeting, would you do that? There's a great Stephen Fry novel in which somebody does that and they go back and and uh, change history and then it turns out that somebody even worse than Hitler takes over yeah. in Germany yeah. and Germany wins the war, you know. So in, in, in a way, I just think you just got to you just got to keep pushing forward. You, just, you my, my I find when I do look back, it probably gets me, you know, leads me a little bit towards depression. Mm. Um, so I avoid it largely, and 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 I think, as I say, regret is 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 not a it's not a constructive emotion. You know, the the regret about the 
about the things that have happened to you or the different ways your life might have gone. You know, I could have, I could have not become a journalist at all, or I could have, you know, become, I could have become a English academic, and and yeah. and my life could have been completely different. But it, it is what it is, and you deal with what you've got, I think, deal, deal with the hand that you dealt. Question four, what you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Well, th- this question's a bit related to the, the last one in that mm. I think because I, I was, I very, very nearly died in 1994. I got, I got this illness and it put me in hospital um, and uh, I was uh, hemorrhaging from the lungs and hemorrhaging from the stomach and uh, I was in more or less intensive care for months and months. I was in hospital altogether for six months and then and it damaged my kidneys and I was told back then that I probably on looking at the averages I probably would only have about 10 years to live and I then I had a series of relapses of the disease and and then in 2004, I had a uh, really bad relapse, which none of the drugs were dealing with. And then I had the incredible good fortune to get a, a new drug, a monoclonal antibody that uh, I was the first person in Australia to be given, and it worked. And so I've had another, you know, more than decade of life. And then in 2013, I got a new kidney and, you know, so many great things have happened in that way but the what i'm saying is is that i learned quite a long time ago that that i might i might only have quite a short time to live and so i've lived it one day at a time i've tried to live as well as i can enjoy myself as much as i can spend as much time with my children as i can i say children they're adult boys now adult men now but uh you know uh so I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I, I, you know, if, if I died tomorrow, I'll be prepared for it, and and I wouldn't again have any regrets, you know. And and then, you know, but before that, I had the most fantastically adventurous life, you know. And, and working for the ABC as a foreign correspondent, I I went all over Europe. I I met extraordinary people, you know. I covered the Solidarity uprising in in um, Poland, and I, I covered uh, the revolution in Tehran, the hostage crisis. I covered uh, the whole, you know, Reagan-Gorbachev four in the 1980s as, as Brussels correspondent. I've been, you know, I've done an awful lot of work in in Italy and France and Spain and places like that. You know, I've had great travel. I've uh, worked at Four Corners uh, in Africa. Southeast Asia, uh, America, all over the place, and, done, and met amazing people and done amazing things. You know, you, you, yeah. you, I've had, I had a good life on the road. I do, you know, that's the, going back to the regret question, that's the thing I regret most about my current life is that I can't travel. I'm, I'm physically quite disabled and, and I can't, you know, I would love to be the, I'd love to be in a position where I could go to Paris, for instance, you know, Mm. during the last week or two, because I speak good French and I was covering that, those issues about 
uh, Muslim migrants in Paris during the 1980s and the 1990s, and I, I, I sort of understand the situation, and yeah, I think yeah. I would have been able to contribute something. And so you have those situations where you think, oh, you know, I, I wish I could be out there. That's the thing. I'd love. I, I'm, I'm a good reporter, and I enjoy um, trans, transmuting what what I see and hear into into a written or filmed or broadcast story. And and uh, so there's something slightly frustrating about sitting in the studio. And, and I tend to use the correspondence as a bit of a as a bit of a sort of proxy for my own eyes and ears in, in that way, I think. After you've been on the road and after you've been covering the, the stories that you've covered, just going back to ordinary life is it's like you're a former addict or something. Literally, you, you, uh, you keep your passport in your jacket pocket or your trouser pocket all the time just in case, you know. Wow. Um, God, when you're a correspondent, you know, you're just constantly... And and that you have that thing, bit like when you when you have your first child and you you spend all night, uh, you know, kind of half sleep in case the, <laughs> you know, uh, you 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 are always kind of slightly as a correspondent, you're always slightly on edge in case because yeah. you know I, I remember being rung at three o'clock in the morning and told from Sydney that the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palmer had been shot in in Stockholm. This is back in the eighties, and. Uh, you know, literally just jumping into my clothes and uh, getting on the phone, organising things, going to the airport and arriving in Stockholm at dawn, more or less, and uh, and things like that. You keep you constantly sort of on the alert and keep you... And then, you know, you come back here and you're just, as I say, going into the studio, going into the office, going into the studio... It's very creative work, you know. Mm. It's great work, but it's not the same. It's not the same as as getting out there with with a tape recorder or with a film crew. I miss the collaboration too. I miss the sense that you have of of working with a cameraman, camerawoman, mm. producer, uh, and finding you know that you're working with people and with editors for that matter, film editors working with people who add more than you imagined yeah, could yeah. be there in, in the story, you know. Question five is, who is the person who most influenced you and how? Well, obviously, your parents influenced you very strongly. My father was a very, uh, you know, really remarkable man, very, very intelligent, very uh, mercurial um quite sort of uh, glamorous in some ways. He, you know, he wasn't James Bond, but he wasn't George Smiley either. He wasn't <laughs> a little, you know, he was he was extremely well-read, very, very smart. I remember when I was at school um, and, you know, you, you, you had friends who would spout rubbish about Marxism and, and my father w- was not only capable of arguing with with them he would sort of uh, quote passages of Marx at them uh, uh, revealing that they actually hadn't read any Marx you know he was that <laughs> and plus this was during the Vietnam War and he was actually the the British consul general in in Hanoi wow. uh, during the worst of the bombing up Operation Rolling Thunder wow. um, 
and but you know we we had a fairly turbulent relationship and and um i i wish i'd spent more time with him than i had you know we we were often on opposite sides of the world him being in in his field and me being in my field and my mother being australian and coming uh, me coming out here to live because my parents split up when i was about 11 um and and actually, my mother is an incredible woman as well. She is still, uh, at the age of 90, managing a farm with extreme efficiency and uh, raising cattle on the southern tablelands and uh, and reading prolifically and, uh, you know, really interesting stuff that she loves to talk about. So I think if my parents have been... A very, very good influence, both remarkably intelligent and challenging people. Does your mum listen to to the show? Oh yeah, she listens. She's a great ABC listener. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Question six: When was the last time you cried, and why? Oh, I cry, cry, quite a lot. <laughs> I think I, I, I um. I'm I'm not a, 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 a you know one of those people who goes off into a corner to cry. I, you'll see me. You'll see tears streaming down my face while I'm watching a movie or whatever. But the last time I cried I was definitely the weekend of you know when when I saw the the Paris killings and it was not only because of the the obvious reasons, just the the dreadful um, carnage of it. It was it was also because it was so close to home. Not only because I know Paris so well and spent so much time there, but but also because when my youngest son is now twenty five, when he was about sixteen, he went off to Europe and and uh, on his first kind of big trip on his own. Some uh, we went to London and stayed with relatives and hung out and went to concerts and things. And he actually. Uh, hopped on the train and went across to Paris and spent a couple of days. I think he went to see Mastodon in Paris, you know, and, it, and it's exactly the, it's exactly the same thing, you know. It's that the, that's the that could have been one of my sons who are both into music and mm. both could easily have been there watching the Eagles of Death Metal. Yeah. You know, it's just it, that's and you see those faces and you see those stories of those people. They are us. There are kids. There are brothers and sisters and so forth. I, I don't I don't uh, discount deaths any, anywhere else. <coughs> Sorry, I got very dry, dry enough. Uh, I don't discount deaths anywhere else, but there is something about the places that you know and and the faces of people who are kind of like you, you know, mm. do the things that your kids do that, that does really bring a tear to the eye in that way. Absolutely. Um, question seven... Like, what is your current state of mind? Oh, pretty good actually. I um, I'm 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 on long service leave. I've been on long service leave for a month and a half or so. I'm writing a book, and so I, my it's a memoir. So my current state of mind is very reflective, um, but pretty cheerful, um, and very engaged i'm thinking a lot i'm constantly because when you write uh, my way of writing is is to kind of organize 
quite large amounts of material in my head before I actually write it down. Like I'll, I, I'll start a chapter when I've got the chapter pretty much ready in my head. Mm. So there's this constant thing going on in my head of, and I've been doing a lot of research on some of my ancestors. And so that's been quite interesting and complicated and, and, um, uh, I've got to make a few decisions about how to weave together the stories of different ancestors on the two sides of the family. So there's a lot of kind of quite, quite complex stuff going on in my head, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very much at peace at the moment. I'm in the country and, uh, providing there are no big bushfires around about, everything's pretty peaceful <laughs> and it's pretty good. Yeah. And when do you go back on air, by the way? February. February, okay. Um, question eight is, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? It's it's one of those things where you go, well, uh, you, you know, you could choose a bunch of stuff, like working for five years at Four Corners. And mm. I know that the first two or three stories that I did at Four Corners were were really, you know, I look at them and I think, oh, God, that was awful. And then my last couple of years of Four Corners, I, I you know, you've, you stuff you've done a long, long time ago, and that's 25 years ago now, you get it out with some trepidation, is this actually going to be any good? And then you start watching and you think, my God, I could write a script the night. I really, <laughs> I really wasn't too bad. Yeah. So, you know, learning, I could say learning to write a, uh, a 45-minute documentary and, and learning the whole art of of long-form TV storytelling. But actually, I think the the real answer is that I've got two sons who I have a very good relationship with and who know that they can call me at any time, talk to me about anything, and the, you know, the the, the kind of patriarchal, sense of previous generations is pretty much erased. I don't think they feel that I'm a kind of authority figure. They just think of me as a friend. I think that's an achievement. That is that is an achievement. What did they do? Oh, they've both got bands. They both direct videos. Um, the eldest one's a trained animator. Uh, they, they, you know, people have what they call portfolio careers now, don't they? They, yeah. they don't, they don't get into something for life. They put together a bunch of stuff. They're both, they're both poor as church mice as a result of it because they put <laughs> most of their money into their bands. And, uh, the, the, the oldest one, uh, they're both songwriters too. The oldest one is called Nick and he's the lead singer of a band called Deep Sea Arcade. Okay, and the youngest one's got a band called Hedge Fund, which I, which is a <laughs> hilarious title. When, when you know how much of my money and his goes gets sunk into it, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- this is my uh, favourite question: Who would you want on your side in a battle, and why? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to go with Ulysses because of. I love that. I love the of all the classical literature. I, I love the the Odyssey best, and the 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 guy is so you know he's not the he's not the greatest fighter in the world. He's not the strongest. Uh, he's not the, the 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 person who 
goes out and and um, you know like Achilles who goes and fights Hector. He's the he's the wily one. He's the one who worked out the tricks. And then and then basically the, the reason I'd have him on my side is is because he had so many battles. You know, his entire the whole of the Odyssey is is really a series of battles to get home. His yeah. whole the whole story is trying to get back across the Aegean, not knowing if his wife's going to be alive at the at, at the other end, not knowing and and he has to do it all with his brain, really. You know, there's there's a, an enormous amount of of stuff that uh, that has to be done not with brawn but with brain, and so I reckon he'd be a, he'd be a um, he wasn't did was there ever even the Ulysses was there a, we know there was there was a Troy of some sort was there a siege of Troy we don't really know too much about that mm. uh, so you know is he a historic is he a real figure or a mythological figure but whichever he is I like him and I like I like the you know there's a great poem by Tennyson about him there's a great poem about, by Louis McNeese about him. James Joyce turned his entire story into a story about a bloke wandering around Dublin. You know, he's 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 endlessly fascinating. I think. And uh, the the final question: What would you like your last words to be? Uh, I, I I I love the last words. The whole last words thing. You know, there's, there's so many great stories about people's last words. You know, the, the uh, I think it was. Pit the younger, or I can't remember. Can't remember if it was Pit the elder or Pit the younger uh, was expected to say something really, really interesting on his deathbed. And actually, what he said was, "Bring me a Bellamy's pork pie." Pork pie. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Whereas Goethe, the poet Goethe, actually actually did say, which I think is the most beautiful set of last words that anyone has ever said: "More light, more light." Wow. Uh, which is like you know, it's so poetic, it's extraordinary, and um, and, uh, and 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 then there are the sort of uh, the, the the great stories about the made-up ones, like George the Fifth, I think, was um, said they they put out a press release or whatever they did in those days, saying that George the Fifth's last words were, "How is the empire?" But what he, what, he, what he actually said was the doctors were telling him that it would be good for him to go to Bognor Regis because uh, he, might, he, he might get better if he got some sea air. And his last words were, bugger Bognor. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but but I, I think my favourite last words, and I think I'll adopt them, are the actor John LeMessurier, you know, who was Sergeant Wilson in Dad's Army and was in lots of the um, Ealing comedies and was with Tony Hancock here. And he, his last words were, it's all been rather lovely. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names. Great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 